All right, so if you read or heard the title of this episode and thought, you know what, I don't believe voter fraud impacts me, or, oh, you know, I live in an area where we don't hear much about that, you may be very, very wrong. Because according to a recent analysis by 538, 60% of Americans will have an election denier on the ballot. I'm just, my eyes are opening super wide because we're looking at a map of the 50 states right now and I'll share it on social. So follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast or Twitter at DWW Podcast. And except for a very few states, you are going to have an election denier on the ballot in your state, like your ballot. And for those of you who have only heard about election deniers since 2020, it didn't start with Donald Trump. And it started with our friend who rhymes with Schmegan. <laughs> but also, I wanted to note there, I heard this morning that 50% of the Republican candidates are actually election deniers in big and small races. So be forewarned. Yikes. Well, then this week is one you'll want to share with your friends and colleagues ASAP because you'll want to make sure you apply the information we're about to share when you're filling out your ballot or heading out to the polls next week, because we're going to tell you just how dangerous and pervasive this trend of alleging voter fraud is, which means, and I cannot emphasize this enough, our entire system of democracy is at risk. And that will affect all of us. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. All right, so let's get kick this off with just dropping some straight facts, okay? So according to Heather Cox Richardson, in an interview in mid-October with CNN's Dana Bash, Arizona Republican nominee for governor, Carrie Lake, refused to say that she would accept the results of the upcoming election unless she wins. <laughs> so she's saying if she wins, the election was legit. But if she loses, the election might have been illegitimate. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. You would think. But former President Trump said the same thing in 2020. And now more than half of the Republican nominees in the midterm elections, just like I was saying earlier, have refused to say that President Joe Biden won the 2020 election because they allege there was voter fraud. Now, let's be 100 percent clear. There was no voter fraud in 2020 on a systemic level in more than 60 cases. Judges looked at the allegations that Trump was making and determined that they were without any merit. So 60 lawsuits alleging voter fraud failed. And yet to have that many leaders deny what our judicial system has found to be true, right, to still believe that Biden is not the legitimate president is an astonishing rejection of the whole premise on which this nation was founded, that voters have the right to choose their leaders. And so for those people who hear this and say, well, was that really a right? Yeah, let's hand it back over to the lawyer, Misasha. Well, I would say that this is a political thing, not necessarily a legal thing. Yeah, but you can interpret these terms a lot better than, like, say, a layman raising hand here. All right. 
Okay, fair point. So I think, you know, Sarah, you're asking a question that we hear a lot, like, was this really established at the start of the United States? And P.S. That's not necessarily a prerequisite for why things should be the way they are today anyway. But in this case, yes, it was because that right was established in the Declaration of Independence, which separated the 13 British colonies in the North American continent from allegiance to the King George III. And so that Declaration of Independence rejected the idea of social hierarchies in which some men were better than others. I mean, we're talking about white landowning men still, but it specifically laid this out and, you know, also rejected the idea that these men who were better than others should rule their inferiors. Because remember, that is part of the reason why we were rejecting the whole British monarchy scheme of government, right? And instead, the Declaration of Independence set out a new principle of government, establishing that all men are created equal, and that governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed. Okay, so now keep in mind, like we were just saying, we know the initial right to vote was reserved for white male landowners. You know, the 15th Amendment gave that right to black men in 1870. The 19th Amendment gave the right to vote to white women in 1920. And the 1965 Voting Rights Act gave pretty much everyone else the right to vote, including black women. So that wasn't, you know, at the time, the Declaration of Independence, meaning including everyone. But still, the premise was that governments derive their just power from the consent of the government, or from the governed, rather. And I feel like you know where we might be going with this, right? The amendments, rather, have built on the original premise that voters have a right to choose their leaders and have made it increasingly possible for more people to vote for their leaders. So this idea that, you know what, actually, we're not going to believe the voters about who they choose as their leaders is completely inconsistent with the country, with what the country was founded on. But get this, this whole concept that like, hey, we're not really going to trust the voters. This isn't an, even an idea that's new to the current day Republicans. In fact, it dates back to, are you ready for it? The Reagan era. Of course it does. How is it that over the last few prepping for the midterm elections episodes, right, when we're talking about how we got to this point that we're in in 2022 with a big lie and abortion and tax cuts for the rich, that we can't seem to go three minutes without talking about Ronald Reagan? Right. And this is directly related to that fundamental economic concept of the Reagan era, supply side economics, also known as Reaganomics, right? And to recap from an earlier episode, which was episode 186, Reagan's economic program was designed to put more money into the hands of those at the top of the economy. In other words, the richest people. But as I'm saying that, you might guess that this policy was not actually popular with voters because they recognized that cutting taxes and services did not, in fact, result in more tax revenue and overall rising standards of living. Because they were so pissed about this, they threatened to throw the Republicans out of office and put back in place the Democrats' policies of using the government to build the economy from the bottom up. So to protect Ronald Reagan's second round of tax cuts in 1986, Republicans began to talk of cutting down Democratic voting through a, heavy air quotes here, ballot integrity initiative, estimating that their plans could, quote, eliminate at least 60 to 80,000 folks from the rolls in Louisiana. The regional director of the Republican National Committee wrote, quote, if it's a close race, this could keep the black vote down considerably, end quote. And yes, he actually wrote that. 
I am like, okay, let's call it what it is. I mean, that has to be blatant racism and voter fraud, right? And it sounds just like the, again, heavy air quotes, election reform that we're seeing since 2020 in this latest wave of trying to keep down the black vote in states like Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, probably a lot more. And so curious, as the wife of a black man and mom to black boys, how does that sit with you? Well, more importantly, I think as someone who understands history, how does that sit with me? And I think it shows what has been consistently done historically in this country, right? Which is suppress the black because of who they're going to vote for, right? Which policies they're going to support. And hint, it's not necessarily the policies that support the rich white landowning people, right? And by people, I mean men in particular here. Totally. Okay. All right. So then let's go back. What happened that first wave? Because I just sort of fast forwarded us to now, but you're talking about that last round of tax cuts in the 1980s. Right. Yes. In 1986. And, you know, so fortunately, the Democrats caught on to this plan, you know, that they were sort of going to just push people off the voter rolls and countered these initiatives by expanding voting through the National Voter Registration Act of 1993, which is more commonly known as the Motor Voter Act. I like the sounds of it. Motor Voter Act. (laughs) Right. Very. Yeah, it's catchy. While Democrats thought it was important to enfranchise, quote, poor people or people who can't afford cars, people who can't afford nice houses, Republicans led by another one of our favorites, Newt Gingrich of Georgia, who was then House Minority Whip, predicted, quote, a wave of fraudulent voting by illegal immigrants, end quote. And I think it should go without saying by now, but obviously you've heard this before and probably very recently. You're probably hearing it right now. And it doesn't take much to jump from there to just blatant accusations of Democrats cheating to win elections. In 1994, losing candidates charged without evidence that Democrats won elections with voter fraud. In California, for example, Senator Dianne Feinstein's opponent, who had spent $28 million of his own money on the race, but lost by about 160,000 votes, said on Larry King Live that, quote, frankly, the fraud is overwhelming. And that once he found evidence, he would share it to demand a new election. Side note, I love that he said once he found evidence, but he's willing to go out there and say, like, you know what? I think there was fraud because I lost. Shockingly, that evidence never materialized. But in February 1995, this losing candidate finally made a statement saying he would stop litigating despite, quote, massive deficiencies in the California election system in the interest of a thorough bipartisan investigation and solution to those problems. I'm still shaking my head. Is this going to be another one of those episodes where my head is just like, ugh? okay. Okay. So in 1996, House and Senate Republicans each launched year-long investigations into what they insisted were problematic elections with Gingrich, who by then was the Speaker of the House, telling reporters, we now have proof of a sufficient number of non-citizens voting that it may well have affected at least one election for Congress. Again, does that sound familiar? Although the House Oversight Committee said the evidence did not support his allegations. In the Senate, after a 10-month investigation, the Republican-dominated Rules Committee voted 16 to 0 to dismiss accusations of voter fraud in the election of Louisiana Senator Mary Landreau that cost her $500,000 in legal fees and the committee $250,000. Her opponent, whose supporters wore small socks on their lapels with the words, don't get cold feet, sock it to voter fraud. Oh my God. (laughs) Right? Can you visualize that? Still refused to concede 
Does that sound familiar? Saying that, quote, the Senate has become so partisan, it has become difficult to get to the truth. So, wow. First of all, Louisiana, you were just ridiculous. That is so much money, clearly just down the toilet, not to mention so much time, energy and effort for something that was obviously not true. And second of all, not to sound like a broken record, but this sounds so familiar. I think we've heard of so many cases of these allegations in this current election cycle. And I really appreciate you digging that up because I think I was still in college during the time that all of this was happening. So I just simply wasn't paying as much attention to what was happening at the time. And I had no idea that yet that was still within our lifetime that all of this stuff was happening. But so here's a question, just like now where again, they've been no proof. It sounds like those cases had no merit either. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, those cases were clearly meant to distract from the real issue, which was unpopular economic policies, right? But talking about them nonstop worked because keeping these cases in front of the media for a year helped convince Americans that voter fraud was a serious issue and that Democrats were winning elections thanks to illegal, usually immigrant voters. Amplified by the new talk radio hosts and by the mid-1990s, the Fox News Channel. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right. Republicans increasingly argued that Democrats were owned by special interests, heavy air quotes there, who were corrupting the system, pushing what they called socialism. That is legislation that provided a basic social safety net and regulated business on, quote, real Americans who they insisted wanted rugged individualism. Again, the shaking of the head, because I have a lot of thoughts on that, right? First of all, socialism is not a four-letter word. It's not what people are using it to refer to, right? Typically in this country, I feel like they use that word to purposely mislead you. And this is a little bit of a digression, I'm sorry. But if you had to push us, I think we would definitely agree that our country is severely lacking in humane safety nets to look out for the fundamental lives and well-being of our citizens, right? To the detriment of our country. And you can see that based on world happiness studies, based on health outcomes, based on longevity statistics, based on education levels compared to other countries. Like there is a lot that we are losing a competitive edge on without the ability for people to feel secure and taken care of. And so at least my personal view is that having some basic safety nets makes us a better country because people don't have to live in fear all of the time. And that is not the definition of socialism. But having those safety nets, I think, makes us actually proud to be Americans in a country by the people for the people. Yeah, I love that. But back in that day, right, back then, that was un-American, right? And so the Republicans were saying that if Democrats really were un-American, then it only made sense to keep such dangerous voters from the polls. If you're looking to get started podcasting, check out Libsyn.com and use the promo code DWWPOD to get up to two months of free podcasting service. Libsyn offers incredible customer service and support, real-time podcast analytics to see how your show's doing, an embeddable podcast player, and all the free podcast guides and tutorials you'll need to get started podcasting today. Go to libsyn.com and use promo code DWWPOD. So in 1998, the Florida legislature passed a law to, quote, maintain the state's voter lists, using a private company to purge the voter files of names believed to belong to convicted felons, dead people, duplicates, and so on. The law placed the burden of staying on the voter lists on individuals who had to justify their right to be on them. 
The law purged up to 100,000 legitimate Florida voters, most of them Black voters presumed to vote Democratic, before the 2000 election, in which Republican candidate George W. Bush won the state by 537 votes, giving him the Electoral College, although he lost the popular vote. I viscerally remember living through that election, watching just the developments. And I remember we talked about this in a much, much earlier episode about voting restrictions. But ah, yes, Florida, the sunshine state with shady integrity. Just to make sure you know, like they did not make it easy for those individuals to show up and prove who they were and get back on the list. So I think that made many, many, many folks miss the election. And so it seems to me like that was the start of voter restrictions Can we talk a bit about the path from the Florida legislature passing this law back like at that time before the 2000 election to the scale of voter suppression that we see now? Yeah, so we can kind of thank the Supreme Court for that, right? So moving forward in time from Florida, that was really where voter voting restrictions had begun. But they really took off after the Supreme Court's 2013 Shelby County versus Holder decision, in which that really gutted, you know, the provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And we have a whole episode on that, do we not? We do. Yes. So that act required preclearance from the federal government before states with a history of racial discrimination changed their election laws. Because remember, when it was left to each state, their history and biases played into how they ran their elections, and the federal government knew they had to oversee it to maintain integrity nationwide. But now, after 2013 and that SCOTUS decision, it basically seemed like a free-for-all, right? And here we are less than a decade later from that, And we have Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis being very open about suppressing Democratic votes because he was easing voting restrictions for three reliably Republican counties devastated by Hurricane Ian, but refused to adjust the restrictions in hard-hit Democratic-leaning Orange County. Ay, ay, ay. Well, and then... I think you sent me a really good Washington Post article talking about this, but let's layer on top of that the openly disgusting attacks on Democrats in the lead up to the midterms to try to justify that voter suppression in the form of this. Last week, Senator Tommy Tuberville suggested that Black Americans are criminals who, quote, want to take over what you got, right? And then some Republican candidates are running ads showing mugshots of Black men. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, we've heard lots about her too, was in Arizona spewing conspiracy theories about immigrants and citing replacement theory, which really echoes the anti-Jewish sentiments that we all heard when Charlottesville was taking place. And Trump is still spewing racist nicknames against a former secretary of transportation who happens to be of Asian descent and happens to be married to Mitch McConnell, who he was angry at. And so huge breath here. There are a ton of opportunities for all politicians and political parties to hold the line against racist and anti-Semitic statements like this. But the Republicans and the Republican lawmakers have stayed silent. Like, make no mistake. You know how we say each of us has the opportunity to be more anti-racist by doing something, as in interrupting this hate? This whole thing is horrible, both that the statements are being made in the first place and that nobody is publicly challenging them. It says a lot about the party as a whole and about those individuals specifically. But I will also venture to say that they're doing this to sow the seeds of mistrust and skepticism. I mean, I think they're using that same technique from before of distracting folks from the real fundamental issues. Totally. I mean, because 
those attacks, right, make it really easy to downplay Democratic election victories. Because if Democratic voters are these awful people trying to undermine the country, we can go back further in history to see this in action, too. Because this argument was exactly how reactionary white Democrats, and remember, Democrats used to be Republicans, justified the 1898 coup in Wilmington, North Carolina, when they overthrew a legitimately elected government of white populists and black Republicans issuing a, quote, white declaration of independence, they claimed, quote, the intelligent citizens of this community owning 95% of the property, does that sound familiar, were taking over because those elected were not fit to run a government. Like the Wilmington plotters, and now we're moving, you know, to basically present day, Trump supporters insisted they were defending the nation from a, quote, stolen election when they attacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021, to cancel the results of the 2020 Democratic victory. And you know what? Especially according to Heather Cox Richardson, it was not so very long ago that historians taught the Wilmington coup as this shocking anomaly in our democratic system. But now, 124 years after it happened, it is current again, because modern day Republicans seem to reject not only the idea that they could lose an election fairly, but also the fundamental principle, remember, that was established in the Declaration of Independence, that all Americans have a right to consent to their government. Do you remember learning about the Wilmington coup in school? Because my jaw dropped when you shared that nugget. I definitely don't remember learning about it, which means that our standards for what anomaly is was already changing when we were kids. We're in our 40s now, right? And I'm sure we have no standards for that that are currently being taught to our kids. So I'm going to have to search up information and share that with my kids when they get home from school today. So then coming back, is this all as bad as it gets? Please say yes. Sadly, no. Because the same Republicans who are alleging voter fraud and believe in the big lie are also resorting to extreme measures to challenge those who are fighting to keep our elections fair and safe. And one such story is playing out in Nevada right now. Because according to Reuters, businessman Robert Beatles claimed he had found evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. Then he went on the attack, targeting a 48-year-old woman who runs elections in Nevada's Washoe County. Beatles told a February 22nd county commissioners meeting in Washoe, which is the second largest county in this election, real battleground state. Now let's talk about treason. That's right, treason. The Republican activists falsely accused the registrar of voters, whose name is Deanna Spicula, of counting fraudulent votes and told commissioners to either fire her or lock her up. And not surprisingly, after the meeting, Spicula's office was flooded with hostile and harassing calls from people convinced she was part of a conspiracy to rig the election against Trump. And on March 2nd, a caller threatened to bring 100 people to the county building to put this to bed today. Spicula, under severe stress, stopped coming into the office. A post on Beatles' website said she was, quote, rumored to be in rehab. That was false, she said. She was at home working on a state elections manual. By late June, fearing for her family's safety, she'd had enough and submitted her resignation. But Beatles' campaign in Washoe is part of a wave of efforts by pro-Trump activists to gain control of voting administration by replacing counting government leaders with election conspiracy theorists. And some, not surprisingly, are spending big money, right? In Nevada, Beatles has poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into campaigns targeting opponents of Trump's false rigged election claims and is conversely backing Republicans who believe them. It should be noted too that Nevada is a key state as identified by Republicans in terms of winning back their Senate majority. 
You're right. It did get worse. Thanks. Um, (laughs) But I'm really being reminded of the definition of terrorism, which is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims. What was happening to that woman sounds horrible. She's doing her job and is now being intimidated. Right. And she's a civilian doing that. So it sounds like what's happening is domestic terrorism straight up. And my question is, like, do you think like, what's the end game here? Spend a lot of money, threaten people, and you what? You win? Yes. And there's a bigger goal, right, which is to profoundly change how our elections are run in the United States. Right-wing activists want to eliminate voting machines and return to hand-counting of paper ballots, which experts say would make elections more prone to fraud, not less. Trump allies have also targeted the ballot drop boxes and mail-in voting that Democrats really embraced in the 2020 election. And last year, as documented by Reuters, U.S. election officials endured an onslaught of intimidation by Trump supporters after the 2020 election. This year, they're facing well-funded campaigns such as the one in Washoe. Officials who resist baseless stolen election claims have faced accusation of treason, which I still can't wrap my head around, or other crimes. Reuters identified 44 counties in 15 states where local officials have faced efforts to change rules on voting since the 2020 election. All of them were led by Trump loyalists or Republican Party activists driven by false voter fraud theories. And guess what? It is working. In Washoe, Beatles' attack helped drive out Spicula, as we just talked about. Ten of Nevada's 17 counties, including Washoe, have seen their top election official resign, retire, or decline to seek re-election since the 2020 vote, which the state government calls a drastic exodus. Four of the officials told Reuters that harassment or sustained efforts to challenge the 2020 election results were among their reasons for leaving. And can you blame them? Who wants to live like that? That absolutely is a lot of pressure. But, you know, you just mentioned it. Nevada really is a key state in terms of flipping the Senate where there's a possibly strong Republican contender. So this race is really being watched closely. Is this sort of intimidation concentrated in key states that the Republicans have targeted or is this something that's unique to Nevada? It's definitely not unique, which is terrifying, again, because other states also report mass departures of election staffers, according to Reuters interviews with election officials in 13 states. In Pennsylvania, more than 50 county election directors or assistant directors have left in the state's 67 counties since the 2020 vote. In South Carolina's 46 counties, 22 election directors have left office, and 30 percent of Texas election officials have exited over that same time period. In one county, the entire elections staff resigned. Many officials in those states say threats, harassment, and incessant voter fraud claims were driving factors in the resignations. But there is another strategy, not just intimidation, in 2022 as well. More recently, election offices around the country have reported being swarmed by arcane records requests, many of which share the same wording that the requesters aren't even sure of the meaning of, something that officials believe is a part of a coordinated effort to really, you know, slow down and gum up the works as they prepare to conduct a midterm election. And I was listening to the New York Times, The Daily Podcast this morning, and the chief election official in Maricopa County, Arizona, mentioned that they have had 1,000 FOIA requests this year, Freedom of Information Act requests this year. You know, 1,000. That's like you said, it's three a day. That's ridiculous. 
Yeah, it's more than three a day, right? Because we're only in October. And side note, if you're an attorney and familiar with election law, please send us a DM or find us on Twitter. There are ways that you can get involved with FOIA requests to help election officials be able to do their job. But back to Nevada for a second. American elections are administered locally, and there is no authoritative nationwide count of resignation by election officials and staffers, right? So Spicula said she and her family faced escalating threats, including someone following her home and strangers calling her husband's cell phone. I mean, can you imagine? You just feel like you're fighting for your life, she said. And she's probably not, I would argue, definitely not the only election official feeling this way right now. No, it makes me feel a little hopeless. But as always, please tell me, is there any good news here? There must be somewhere. Well, yes. And it comes in the form of a crime fraud exception. And I know that might not make sense now, but just give me a minute. So as we were putting this episode together via the Associated Press, we heard some big news from U.S. District Court Judge David O. Carter for the Central District of California who has been overseeing the fight between Trump lawyer John Eastman and the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And side note, I spent a lot of time in front of Judge Carter for a very contentious, very long trial, and he used to take trips to Pakistan to basically address the rule of law there. He's an ex-Marine. No nonsense. So this is especially great, in my opinion. Have I mentioned how cool I think you are for the work you do and that work you have done? <laughs> like, no, I haven't I told you that today. I think you're amazing. Okay, you're awesome. Oh, thanks. Well, going back to Carter for a second, Eastman was the author of the memo outlining a plan for stealing the 2020 election. This is a little recap. The January 6th committee subpoenaed Easton's emails, but Easton tried to shield a number of them, arguing that they fell under attorney-client privilege, right? So he didn't have to turn them over. After reviewing the emails, Carter ruled some of them must be made public because of the crime fraud exception, meaning that they are not privileged because they appear to reveal a crime. Four documents show how the Trump team's primary goal in filing lawsuits was not to obtain relief, but rather, quote, to delay or otherwise disrupt the January 6th vote. Those documents then further the crime of obstruction. Did you hear my jaw drop right now? I've not heard this yet. What? Yeah, so you'll especially like this. Crucially, one of the documents concerns a lawsuit Trump and his lawyers filed in Fulton County, Georgia, in which they badly miscounted the number of voters they claimed were voting illegally, and Trump signed a verification of those numbers. After filing in Georgia, they decided to sue at the federal level. But by then, Eastman had learned that the numbers they put into the Georgia lawsuit were inaccurate. He warned... Although the president has signed a verification for the state court filing back on December 1st, he has since been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence proffered by the experts has been inaccurate. For him to sign a new verification with that knowledge and incorporation by reference would not be accurate. But Trump signed a verification swearing under oath that the incorporated inaccurate numbers are true and correct or believed to be true and correct to the best of his knowledge and belief. So this appears to provide proof that Trump and his allies deliberately lied about so-called voter fraud numbers, both before the public and in court. So Judge Carter found that these emails are sufficiently related to and in furtherance of a conspiracy to defraud the United States and ordered Eastman to disclose them to the January 6th committee. That is all to say Trump appears knowingly to have lied in writing under oath to a court. And I guess, you know, now the real question is, what are the consequences to Trump? And if history holds true, nothing. 
But is this enough to really question the story that we are being told as a nation, that there was large scale voter fraud, when we can clearly see that from the top down, everyone deliberately lied about so-called voter fraud numbers under oath, knowing the penalties for doing so? And if that's the case, what else did they lie about? It's such a good point. But like, what can we do besides shouting this from the rooftops? Because I feel that like folks who believe there was voter fraud believe this on a faith like level and the facts might not change their minds. So I guess if we understand what the truth is here, we obviously need to be voting. But what else? Yes, well, that is totally accurate. And one role that you can still possibly get involved in with regards to the immediate midterm elections or keep in mind for the future is volunteering as an election protection volunteer or as a poll worker. Because Sarah, you know how we're always talking about how the other side is loud and organized and we need to get loud and organized? They're also very loud and organized when it comes to this job. For example, over the weekend, the Maricopa County Elections Department announced that two people, both armed and dressed in tactical gear, stationed themselves at a ballot drop box or near a ballot drop box in Mesa, Arizona. They left when law enforcement officials arrived. At least two voters later filed complaints of voter intimidation, both complaining that they were filmed dropping off ballots. One complained of being accused of being a mule, a reference to people who are allegedly paid to gather ballots and stuff drop boxes for Democratic candidates. Maricopa County Board of Supervisors Chairman Bill Gates and recorder Stephen Riker issued a statement. We are deeply concerned about the safety of individuals who are exercising their constitutional right to vote and who are lawfully taking their early ballot to a drop box. Vigilantes outside Maricopa County's drop boxes are not increasing election integrity. Instead, they are leading to voter intimidation complaints. This is why we need poll workers and election protection official helpers to ensure that everyone has the right to vote, not just everyone we agree with. Next up, there's a woman named Cleta Mitchell who is training thousands of Trump loyalists to monitor the polls. Yeah, you totally. You sent me that article. So folks, if you want any of these articles, DM us on social or email us at hello at dearwhitewomen.com because we have them. Yes. And the meetings that Mitchell and her group host to train poll workers are, unlike ones by good government outfits, invariably closed to the press. But what has leaked out has been alarming. In one meeting this spring, Mitchell warned attendees that Democrats were trying to create a, quote, new American majority of young voters, people of color and unmarried women. And we have to make sure that doesn't happen, Mitchell said, according to an audio obtained by the investigative organization documented and published by Politico. Mitchell also warned that Democrats have been talking about how changing demographics in America was going to render conservatives obsolete. She noticed that Democratic-aligned groups like the ACLU registers voters, targeting, she says, quote, the most vulnerable people in, of our society by promising them that by voting and voting Democratic especially, they will have their problems alleviated. They bring democracy to your doorstep, she said on the recordings, referring to the Democrats' warnings about the erosion of democracy. I want to pause right here. We don't live in a democracy. We live in a constitutional republic. And that is true, right? But that doesn't mean what she's suggesting, because what is true about the fact that we live in a constitutional republic is that is how we are set up. But again, going back to the Declaration of Independence, we are very clear the consent of the governed who put elected officials in place. What she is suggesting is that democracy never really was a right of this country in the same way. And that is terrifying. 
So what can we do about this? Volunteer, write letters, make calls, connect with others who may not have this information. We always talk about how in particular women have all of this inherent power that's undervalued. And one of those powers is organizing our immediate communities. Get your friends together at a ballot party and discuss who's on the ballot. Meet the candidates in your local area if you can. Ask questions, because as I was reminded this weekend, you are the customer as the constituent. Call your representatives, remind them who they represent, and if you want something, ask for it. Because now is the time to get loud, not just by voting and spreading the word, but by holding our elected officials accountable. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 